Hello and welcome to Let's Talk Cancer. I'm Eric Grant, Communications and Media Manager for the Union for International Cancer Control, an organization that unites and supports the cancer community to reduce the global cancer burden. I'm filling in today for our CEO, Kerry Adams, to speak about the topic of access to pain relief medicines. Pain is unfortunately a common symptom in many types of cancer, particularly in advanced stages, caused directly by a tumor pressing on nerves, organs, or bones, or pain can be a side effect of cancer treatments, such as chemotherapy or radiation. For severe pain, especially to ensure the comfort and quality of life of end-of-life patients, doctors prescribe opioids, including morphine. Their production and distribution tend to be heavily regulated. Today, 50% of the world's poorest populations live in countries that receive only 1% of the opioid pain relief medicines distributed worldwide. By contrast, the richest 10% of the world's population live in countries that receive nearly 90% of the opioid pain relief medications. In this episode of Let's Talk Cancer, we're joined by two distinguished guests, Dr. Elizabeth Sentz, Program Officer at the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime, or UNODC, and Professor Michelle Kazechkin, former Executive Director of the Global Fund to Fight AIDS, Tuberculosis and Malaria, and a member of the Global Commission on Drug Policy, a group of high-level personalities, including some 15 former heads of state or government, who advocate for the strict legal regulation of psychoactive substances. Dr. Sens, Professor Gazetchkin, thank you so much for joining us today to discuss this critical topic for the health and well-being of millions of people around the world who are living and dying in terrible and preventable pain. So the first question uh, for Dr. Sens, the International Narcotics Control Board has highlighted the lack of access to essential medicines as a violation of the right to health. How does UNODC view this issue? Well, the first thing is that the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime absolutely recognizes the importance of ensuring the access to essential medicines as a part of the right to health. Control medicines, many of them are essential medicines and therefore should be available and accessible to all people who need these medications for any medical condition. But as you will very well mentioned at the beginning, in particular cancer, advanced stages of cancer and for palliative care. Our role is supporting member states in complying with their obligations to ensure that controlled substances do not cause the harm when they are used for non-medical and scientific purposes. However, striking this balance is extremely challenging because unfortunately in many countries, the fear of diversion, especially, the fact that these medications can cause dependence and addiction and that they are used non-medically or for non-medical purposes produce a, a very negative effect uh, in the form of over or unduly restrictive policies that result in the reduced availability or limited availability and restricted, restricted access for people who need these medications. Definitely uh, uh, an issue that the UNODC recognizes as an essential um, human right, the access to essential medicines. And, and Professor Kazechkin, I know uh, the Global Commission's highlighted this in several reports. In fact, in 2015, there was a report specifically dedicated the the problem of access to, to pain relief, and it found that 75% of the world population had no access to pain relief medication, and these this population mainly concentrated in low-income settings. Uh, has this number evolved at, at all? Uh, and and what, is, what are some of the barriers to accessing pain relief for end-of-life cancer patients and, and other patients, particularly in low- and middle-income countries? I'm sad to say uh, that the numbers have not changed much. 
since 2015. Uh, last year, the INCB, the International Narcotic Control Board, uh, published a report and noted that, quote, over 82% of the global population had access to less than 17% of the world's morphine-based medicines. So um, there remains a great inequity in terms of access to pain relief medication for people around the world today. Despite the fact that the 1961 Single Convention on Narcotic Drugs clearly stipulates that adequate provision must be made to ensure the availability of narcotic drugs for medical purposes. Now, what's happening is that most of the countries, I would say, have really essential opioids on their national essential medicines lists, which is a list of medications that the WHO considers to be most effective and safe to meet the most important needs in a health system. However, these medicines are far from being consistently available. Why is that? countries have an obligation to their to their citizens to ensure that they do have access either through the production or the import of sufficient quantities of these medicines. And actually, some of the international organizations we've mentioned, uh, in, in particular UNODC, the INCB, the International Narcotics Control Board, WHO even, uh, have a responsibility also to support countries in acquiring these medicines. So why aren't they available? Well, there are many reasons, but let me list a few of them. Countries are regularly to provide the INCB in Vienna with their estimated needs. And that's where one of the key problems lie. Many countries still find it difficult to identify their actual requirements of narcotic drugs and are therefore unable to provide adequate estimates. So that's, that's the first reason, underestimation uh, of needs at national level. The next one is a sort of mindset around opioids, and that is the priority that is given to preventing the diversion of controlled substances for illicit purposes over ensuring their access for medical and scientific needs. So countries at the end are reluctant or shy and poorly able to estimate real needs. Maybe a third reason is the overly burdensome regulations for prescribing controlled medicines in many countries. Limitations on the types of hospitals or wards where opioids can be administered, the dose and length of time allowed by a single prescription, and which clinician or sometimes nurse can prescribe opioids. And uh, one last element uh, that may play neg negatively is the uh, opioid overdose epidemic in the U.S. of the last um, seven, eight years. The North American opioid crisis is the result of a number of factors, but it started when limited, or I would rather say inexistent regulation uh, allowed the exponential increase of potent opioid prescribing, such as oxycodone and fentanyl, and then their expansion of their use for a broad range of chronic uh, 
pain conditions. Whereas, and let me remind everyone from the beginning, opioids are the best treatment for acute pain conditions, not chronic pain conditions. I just want to add one factor that I think we also need to consider, and is the capacity of health systems. Um, in all the elements that he mentioned, which I completely second and agree with, there is an element of capacity of health systems that we tend to forget. I mean, we can countries cannot just be flooded with control medicines they cannot handle. And if the health system's capacity is limited to a certain number of medical procedures that require these medications, I'm not saying that all the issues mentioned do not exist, but the issue of health systems is also very important. Let's address the issue of the, the diversion issue, because it's true that it's framed in the context of a, a drug convention that in 1961 uh, called drug use and evil that needs to be eradicated. There, there has been a mindset or a, a stigma has developed around a drug use, a fears have developed around drug use. So... Dr. Sense, how, how can the UNODC work with government to balance this this dual nature where we have a, a product that can be potentially addictive, but that can bring, obviously, enormous relief to patients in pain? So from production, import, uh, distribution to warehouses, distribution to pharmacies, prescription dispensing, diversion can occur at any of these points. We need to be able to prevent it, but we also need to be able to detect it, and we need to be able to respond. Since January, I am in charge of this program on access to controlled medicines. It's a joint program with the WHO and UICC. So what I have been doing since January is to look in, in detail into what are those strategies or what are those programs, projects, or interventions that are required for us to have a better understanding of where, how, when, who is involved in diversion in a specific countries, and then be able to do that, prevent, detect, and respond to the issues of diversion. The misuse of these substances usually happen by patients that have been prescribed medication and decide to either increase the dose, extend the duration of the treatment, uh, but non-medical use, which is people actively seeking the use of this medication for other than medical or scientific purposes, is a huge challenge. If I understand you correctly, you're, you're speaking here about recreational use, um, in other words, using a, a medicine for pain relief. Uh, in a way that it wasn't intended when there is actually actually no pain and just for the effect of the drug. This drug, this type of drug use, obviously the, the multiple factors that can lead to it. I'm just wondering if in your experience you've seen um, certain patterns of behavior, patterns of, of use and, and, and what may, may be behind those. We know that women, when it comes to the um, non-medical use of prescription medicines, women are overrepresented compared to the proportion of women using all other forms of drugs. Age groups, for example, young people who use many of these controlled medicines for uh, staying awake, to enhance or perceive enhancement of their cognition when they are studying and so on and so forth. And also, there is a very interesting group that 
we haven't been looking at, but I am determined to look at, that, at the, this group, which is the group of elderly people, especially people staying in nursing homes where there might be a lot of diversion and also misuse and non-medical use of these medicines. So we are trying to look at this issue of diversion in a comprehensive manner, knowing that we can only address this with a multi-sectorial approach. It's not only in the health system, it's not an exclusive activity of the law enforcement. And, um, and always with the view to, um, or, or the main goal of ensuring the availability uh, securing the access to controlled medicines for people who need them. So before we move on to some of the other barriers, just one last question with the on the issue of diversion, um, because obviously diversion means then illegal use, illegal means uh, criminalization. And uh, Professor Kazetchkin, the Global Commission argues for the strict legal regulation of all psychoactive substances from their production to consumption distribution. How do you feel that, that this could help provide greater access and how does that work within the current uh, drug control, the, the, the manner in which drugs are currently scheduled or classified according to their medical benefits and harms? I'm really um, concerned about the impact of this wording of misuse, diversion, which is immediately negative, is, is a terminology that is already stigmatizing and, of course, uh, uh, referring to the criminalization background of, of these uh, substances. When, uh, you know, hundreds of millions of people use uh, some of these illicit substances everywhere, every day uh, across the world. The very uh, name of that agency, uh, UN Agency on Drugs and Organized Crime, just immediately puts these substances in one category rather than the other. Uh, and as you rightly said, Eric, the Global Commission um, actually argues uh, for the fact that just as for alcohol or tobacco that are far more harmful at society level globally than uh, the current list of illicit substances, we should ultimately aim at moving towards having them regulated. I'm not say, saying legalized because there is people interpret legalization as availability everywhere for everyone, but under strict regulation, just as alcohol, tobacco cannot be sold to young people in a number of countries, let's say in Canada, are only sold in specialized shops for tobacco, uh, is advertised on the packages with specifications that allow everyone to take responsibly the decision to go or not to go for that substance. So just to clarify, we're not speaking here when you're talking about legal regulation, having all types of drugs or psychoactive substances like heroin, cocaine readily available on in corner shops or even in, in pharmacies. Even with age limits and warning labels, it's, it's really crafting policies that take into account the specific uh, effects and risks to health of each substance and defining a legal framework accordingly. Uh, just for instance, in, in Switzerland, there is, I think for almost 30 years now, there's a, a framework for the legal distribution of heroin called the Heroin Assisted Program, where people who have tried all other methods to, to try and get off it um, and haven't been able to go to the, the hospital in Geneva and receive medical grade diamorphine a couple times a day. 
this is this is what we're talking about when we're talking about the legal regulation and I, I think that actually when we talk about the respective risks and dangers of each drug then we get into the actual classification of scheduling I think we referred to in the past uh, how each each drugs are ca- defined in categories perhaps you may want to touch upon that Narcotic drugs are grouped into what we call four schedules or or categories, and they are defined according to their dependence or addictive, if you wish, potential, and also therapeutic usefulness. Schedule one is for substances that are considered highly addictive, and that includes, let's say, opium, heroin, oxycodone. Schedule 2 includes drugs which are considered to be, quote, less liable to abuse and which are more widely used in medicine. And so morphine, which is a heroin derivative used to reduce pain, is in Schedule 2. But morphine, as we already said, uh, also features in the World Health Organization's model list of essential medicines. Clearly illustrated with morphine is that the pain relief medication appears simultaneously in the model list of essential medicines and in the illicit drugs schedules uh, because of those diversion, quote, misuse potential. I'd, I'd like to... to to give two reasons why we consider this uh, as problematic. Uh, One is that the scheduling decisions, that is uh, the decision to classify a given substance in one or the other categories, is taken by member states. It is first the WHO, the World Health Organization, that through an expert committee on drug dependence provides recommendations on whether a substance should be or should not be scheduled and in which schedule it should be scheduled. And then these recommendations are submitted to a vote by CND member states. But that vote being a vote by member states is a political vote, and we know how tense uh, can be political discussions and how polarized geopolitically the world is today. And the decisions, the votes by the CND can actually go against the expert recommendation of WHO. And the other reason is that the current scheduling of a number of substances actually does not correspond to the evidence base of their relative dangerosity. And this is something we have known for over 10 years, originally comes from work of a British scientist, David Nutt, and he's um, built a sort of multifactorial set of indexes to classify psychoactive substances Uh, according to their individual and societal harms. Uh, And by the way, in in that classification, alcohol, again, uh, is clearly more harmful at societal level than, than heroin. And so we believe that it is time, and it has long been time, for the international system to review the current scheduling system to try and find a way out of these uh, 
tension that is generated by the fact that these medications are both an essential medicine and on the list of illicit drug schedules. Dr. Sens, what is your perspective on this? I think that what I would add to what he said is that, in principle, the conventions have a public health ultimate goal, which is to protect the people from the dangerous effect of these substances, because it is undeniable that all the substances that are on these various schedules that Dr. Kaczaski mentioned have uh, psychoactive uh, effects that um, alter the brain, and therefore their use, and it's not that they are illicit per se, their use outside any medical or scientific purposes is an illegal act. Member states acknowledge and recognize the use of these control medicines for medical and scientific purposes, but they are also committed to keep these substances under control in order to, to protect uh, people. It's a public health ultimate goal. But if I may, uh, Eric, I, I, I fully agree. It is a mandate to protect, and, and protection is the, one of the key missions of public health. However, currently, the ways to protect is prohibition of non-medical use of these substances. And that's the problem, because prohibition generates the black market. Black market means a big industry, as you know, against which the authorities are fighting by trying to reduce the supply of, of these substances on the black market. And that has failed for 50 years, 60 years. The, the very basics of the supply and demand theory will, will tell you that uh, um, demand will be answered uh, by uh, diversion. Uh, so what we are saying is that one should recognize that there is consumption of this substance, that there is demand, and the way to protect is not to prohibit, but it is to carefully regulate, again, as we do with every single uh, potentially uh, harmful substance, be it a medicine, be it a radioisotope, be it alcohol or, or be it uh, tobacco. And then I fully agree with Elizabeth also that uh, the substance in, in no way is an evil by itself. But please note that this is a, a wording that is used in the 1988 uh, convention. So uh, there are many things that we, we, we should review here. How do we ensure that if we're in a situation where these medicines were readily available, that the countries uh, were ordering and receiving the medicines that their, their populations need, um, that these will actually be effectively distributed, that they can have the supply chains and the distribution and the, and the, the know-how to be able to prescribe them? That's a very important question, and definitely UNODC is very committed to supporting member states to make sure that, first of all, that they are that these medications are available, uh, first of all, but when they are available, that they are also accessible uh, to the people who are in need. But there are many strategies or initiatives that could be put in place, like, for example, uh, price reduction strategies. We hear that in some countries of the world, Patients are asked to choose between paracetamol, ibuprofen, or opioids, yeah, in, in a medical condition that requires, and the prices go from one to five to fifty dollars, twenty dollars. So guess what is the choice? 
So they have to go for the cheapest if they can even afford the cheapest. Uh, there are gender dimensions as to the prescription of, of, of pain. You know, it is, there seems to be a, a, an understanding that women can endure pain uh, better than men. So um, for, we need to work on having more support from donors and more aid programs to really tackle the deep, the deeply rooted uh, and complex issues behind the limited availability and access to control medicines. And I want to mention again the issue of health systems, enhance the capacity of the health systems, because in the end, if a health system can only cater for a proportion of the needs of their population based on, on epidemiological pa uh, patterns, then what is the purpose of flooding the countries with uh, controlled medicines that no one can prescribe? I think there is a crucial aspect in all of this, which is the training of health professionals. But definitely, I, I am convinced that maybe we need to start working with younger health professionals, younger doctors, new generations of doctors that have a completely different view about the drugs that as they were 60 years ago. Thank you so much. I think I think we could go on for, for a long time to talking about these issues. It's fascinating. But thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Let's Talk Cancer. And if you'd like to know more about access to essential medicines, you can visit our dedicated webpage and listen to podcasts on drug shortages and access to medicines. And if you have a moment, please do give us a rating and share the podcast. It really helps us reach a wider audience and inform more people about issues surrounding cancer. 